Ned Kalange. I'm the President and CEO of the Colorado Trust. I'm here to welcome you to the second Health Equity Learning Series of the 218-219 season. I'm pleased to be here with all of you. At the Colorado Trust, our vision is that all Coloradans have fair and equal opportunities to leave healthy, productive lives, regardless of race, ethnicity, income, or where we live. While there are many differences that affect opportunity, we were intentional about the examples we included in our organizational vision. And I want to focus briefly on income. Income and wealth inequality plays an outsized role in determining whether someone lives a healthy, productive life. The United States has experienced remarkable income and wealth inequality since the country's founding. Unfortunately, in the last few decades, the divide has only worsened. This slide is from the 218 World Inequality Report and shows the, this is a project of the World Inequality Project, and it's looking at the bottom 50% of the U.S. earners versus the top 1% of U.S. earners. And you can see that we've, the top 1% has nearly doubled its share of the national income, while the bottom half has seen their share of the national income sharply decline. The divide is most pronounced along race lines. For every $100 in white family wealth, black families in this country hold just $5. And this inequality keeps getting worse. The Institute for, Poli for Policy Studies found that between 1983 and 2013, the median wealth of black households in the U.S. declined 75% and 50% among Latino households. In that same period, white median household wealth increased 14%. Income inequality affects individual well-being. It's well known and it's not particularly surprising. If you earn and accumulate more money, you're likely to live longer. Yet what recent research has shown is that income inequality affects the fabric of entire communities including the higher earners. The University of Wisconsin's Population Health Institute found that for every one point increase in the ratio between high and low earners in country, there were about five years of life lost for every thousand people. To put that in perspective, it's about the same change when a community's smoking rate increases by 4% or its obesity rate rises by 3%. <coughs> this uh, study by Chetty, which came out uh, just last year shows this remarkable um, relationship between how much you earn and how long you live. And we see it's true for both genders. And we know that if you have one percentile in household income, you gain one month in longer life. To put that in perspective, mammography only adds on average three months to a woman's age. So this is a huge impact of poverty. Two years ago, tonight's speaker, Nikki Akuk, stood on stage at the TEDx conference in Crenshaw, California and asked, how do we get the wealth to build the kind of communities that we want? The answer, she said, is, is collective economics, especially worker ownership of businesses. She believes collective e economics are essential to weaving the fabric of healthy, vibrant communities. And she's going to share her thoughts on the connections between community wealth and health with you this evening. Before we get started, I have a few uh, other notes. We're going to email you an evaluation survey after tonight's presentation. I hope you'll keep an eye out for it. I hope you'll complete it and return it. Uh, we read every evaluation to help make the series better. The materials from tonight will be posted on our website, including a complete video coverage of the event. 
The video takes this a little while to finalize uh, and post and will also be available with Spanish subtitles. We tend to get the written materials up on the website earlier uh, and we'll post a link to the TEDx talk by Nikki that I just mentioned. I'm also going to uh, ask you to silence your cell phone, which I will do too. It's all right, no one ever calls me. <laughs> and thank you. I want to recognize our Health Equity Learning Series 2018-29 grantees. You'll see they're scattered across the state. Uh, these 20 grantees will use the recordings from tonight and work with our facilitators um, who uh, are from Transformative Alliances uh, to kind of discuss the impact of the, of the information in their communities. I want to highlight the six communities that are bolded. These are our inaugural class of community leaders in health equity. Uh, in, including hosting the events and the facilitated discussions, staff from these organizations are taking part in an intensive 18-month curriculum which is focused on health equity education and awareness. This is a significant time commitment and I want to make sure I point them out and thank them for that time. If you'd like uh, to find a viewing event near you, please visit the Health Equity Series page on our website. There's an interactive map that will locate the Colorado uh, grantee closest to you along with their contact information. And these events will begin taking place around the state in, the, in a few weeks. Now it's a real pleasure to introduce you to Nikki Akuk, our speaker this evening. In 2012, she founded RCO Material Reuse based in Compton, California. The company has since recycled more than 300 million pounds of rubber, diverting 60 million gallons of oil from landfills in the process, with 16 employees. This makes it one of Califor Southern California's largest sustainability plants. RCO creates alternative uses for trash tires, turning them into new products. Because of Okuk's progressive hiring and management practices, RCO material reuse provides stable jobs for black and Latino residents who struggle to find employment because of past criminal convictions or legal status. Nikki Okuk grew up in Los Angeles and majored in economics at Columbia University and completed an MBA in Nanyang University in Sing Singapore, which included a sustainability certificate at the Sloan School of Business at MIT. And I hope you'll uh, join me in wel welcoming Nikki Akuk to the stage. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, and listening to what I have to say. I'd like to especially thank my elders in the room. I am not always a huge fan of listening to the opinions of those who are younger than me because sometimes they don't have enough lived experience. So thank you for uh, taking the time. Mostly what I have tonight, I don't have any slides. I have a lot of stories. I'm going to be telling you the stories of the folks at RCL and what we've done so far. Um, we often ask why people who are made poor by our political and economic systems are also made less healthy. Uh, and there have been some clear causes identified, things like lack of access to health care or lack of access to fresh food. However, I think that the stories that I'm going to tell you express a different experience, which is that the very context of our lives, uh, 
which is full of unstable housing and unstable transportation, which then translates into difficulties in finding and keeping employment, shortages of resources in our family and our social networks, that those things combine to create what has been described as a calculus of poverty. It is the stress of being poor that makes us ill. Um, so systemic class oppression makes people poor and keeps people poor through this intergenerational trauma. And I think that there are some solutions on the horizon and ways that we can begin to address this wealth imbalance. Many will hear what I have to say as a critique of capitalism. Uh, it is, in a way, but I am also a capitalist. I live along with all of you in this system. I am a small business owner. I founded RCO Tires, as you mentioned, in 2012. I had just graduated business school, and I was reading Van Jones. And he wrote, let's make green collar jobs in the hood. And I thought, I can absolutely do that. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Uh, so I founded RCO Tires. We were just one guy with a moving truck and a small warehouse. We've grown over the years. As he's mentioned, we've recycled more than 300 million pounds of rubber, uh, almost 70, 70 million gallons of oil diverted out of landfills and into new products. To put that into context, that would be seven times the Exxon Valdez spill. We, uh, we employ about 15 to 16 guys, and many more have gone through our doors, come to work there, and gone on to better employment opportunities, which I'm very proud of, most of whom are formerly incarcerated or formerly houseless. We pay above the minimum wage, and we are now proud members of the United Steelworkers Union Local 675. Thank you. So a lot of people ask, you know, how did RCO come to be? Because I think that we do have an aspiration. We would like more businesses like this in our community, ones that are women-led or black-owned, green businesses, triple bottom line, with progressive hiring practices and employing the formerly incarcerated. But I have to be really honest when people always ask me this question, and it's that I used my white privilege. Right, so half of my family is white, and I'd like to describe to you a little bit about how white privilege functioned in order to make RCO possible. So my grandmother was born in 1918 on her plantation in Arkansas, moved with her grandfather west following the oil boom out to California, where uh, she worked, she became a hairdresser, he worked in various oil jobs which would not have been available to say my black great-grandfather had he been in Los Angeles at the same time. She then uh, purchased a lot in West Los Angeles, which she built a home on with a loan from Bank of America, which also would not have been given to a black family at the time because of redlining. Um, and then after my grandfather passed, she was able to maintain that home and raise her children in it with the pension from his county job, yet another job that would not have been available to an African-American person at the time, or at least until the um, Anti-Discrimination Act of the 60s. So, what that means is when it comes to me, right, 30 years later and I graduate and I've got you know, a bunch of debt and no experience in the tire industry, but I want to start my own business, I can do it because I have access to this thing that a lot of people don't have access to. Right? I have a, a affordable, free place to live. I moved in with my grandmother and I was able to live with her while we started the company, which means I was able to do things like buy our first forklift and rent our first warehouse 
And I didn't have to really worry about paying myself in those initial, that initial year of starting the company because I didn't have to feed myself because I am the benefactor of generations of wealth. So I think that this is really important because in telling the story of the white side of my family, I also mentioned a dozen ways in which African-American families would not have been able to sort of access wealth and build traction over the generations. So when we ask ourselves, how are we going to build more companies like RCO, we have to ask ourselves, where is the wealth going to come from? So I've done a lot of work around cooperative economics, but I want to sort of expand on this story of why, about why poverty can become a sort of systemic and cyclical pattern and expand more upon why it is so difficult to break out of the sort of gears that are functioning and interacting with each other to create poverty. So I always try to lead the conversation with RCO around that reality check, right? The reality check that you know, we didn't spring forth from you know, my ingenuity and hard work. <laughs> there, there was ingenuity and hard work there, but I think that that myth that we tell ourselves in the United States about entrepreneurs and about bootstrapping, and it's very tied up in our history, and the, and the myth perseveres almost to the point that I'm constantly encountering very, um, I want to say, condescending narratives around RCO. They say things to me like, uh, good job, you're giving these guys a second chance at life, or um, way to get your education and work really hard and you know, make it. Uh, one of my least favorite is always the one where they compare recycling goods to recycling people, something along the lines of, uh, <laughs> you're going to give these tires a second life and these guys too. Uh, that was always so frustrating because black people feel like a really specific kind of way about being compared to goods and products. But um, I think that there's a reason why these mythologies endure and as I mentioned, it has to do with America's idea about itself, right? What is history except for the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves or the stories that people in power <laughs> tell ourselves about us and themselves? So part of that story for the American history is, is really putting individual accountability front and center, you know, quote unquote, we the people, quote unquote, a few good men the types that were able to persevere and you know, build something from nothing as they would like to portray it. I think that we now know that's not true at all, right? That that American mythology is also a myth, that the wealth that the United States has was built from stolen land and stolen labor. And I think that this is an important point to make also to people of color and folks that have been impoverished because there is sometimes a feeling around <clears throat> whether or not we are entitled to the wealth that this nation has. And I think we should be very clear that we are because the United States would not be as wealthy as it is had they not taken the land and taken the labor. So the wealth that we enjoy here in this country is very much grown from a soil that has been fertilized by our ancestors blood and watered with their <clears throat> tears. I think that, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. 
So by stealing land and by stealing labor, they were able to extract a great amount of wealth. And the same is true for other companies. You know, if RCO didn't have any rent to pay and didn't have any payroll to make, RCO would be the most profitable tire recycling company in America. But that's simply not true, you know. Right now we operate on some very slim margins, and uh, which is why I don't pay the people that work with me or myself really as much as any of us think that we should earn, especially to have a living wage in Los Angeles. So, sorry, that's my baby here tonight. <laughs> so we shouldn't be particularly surprised to find out that if the myth of American exceptionalism is a myth, then the idea of individual exceptionalism isn't particularly accurate either. And therefore, we should not be surprised when it is incredibly difficult for people who live in poverty to escape it. As I mentioned, there's a few large functions um, that I'd like to cover tonight, one of which is housing. And I started with the story of how I was able to inherit wealth through my grandparents and my parents. Um, we've talked about how racism was part of that. And I think we're all sort of familiar with the ways that home ownership can generate generational wealth. Um, and we also know that home ownership is much lower amongst communities of color. And that has a lot to do with a deep history of redlining, which was banks obviously identifying communities of color and refusing to lend in those communities. Uh, but even more recently in the financial crisis of 2008, Wells Fargo pled guilty and then paid fines for selling subprime mortgages specifically to people of color. They were described in their own internal documents as ghetto loans. And they were offered to people of color who had similar credit ratings and income as white people who were offered regular mortgages. So in fact, the most recent financial crisis that <clears throat> stole homes from so many people disproportionately affected communities of color and those who were already poor and just so very excited to own their first home. Um, housing in Los Angeles has a sort of other interesting dynamic. I can't speak too much to the housing market here in Denver, but I can say this. RCO pays on average about $14.50 per hour. A lot of these guys have two children, some more than that which means that uh, if their partner is staying home with a smaller child, then they're living on one income of less than $2,000 a month. The average two-bedroom apartment in Los Angeles is $2,300. So obviously those ends don't meet, but hey, so we live and work in the hood. So in Compton, the average two-bedroom, I don't even really wanna say this because I don't wanna get gentrified, but the average two-bedroom apartment in Compton <laughs> is $1,500, and so the way that they make that work, right, is that they work for me, and then a lot of them have sort of side gigs where they're helping out at a family restaurant or their wife is doing daycare on the side. And that may pay rent, but we have a very competitive housing market in the sense that any landlord is gonna ask any one of these guys in LA to earn four times the rent to move in. And very often they have criminal background checks and very often you have to have stellar credit and very often there's rules on how many people can live in a home. So it is almost impossible to secure housing in LA. I have gone so far as to go in and rent apartments for my employees. 
Uh, interestingly, though, my credit, and my credit used to be great before I started a small business, <laughs> but interestingly, my credit and my income may not be that much better than theirs, and yet I get more callbacks from landlords, so we know what that is. Uh, I don't necessarily always read as a black person, and you know, these guys, they walk in and they get turned down again and again, I mean dozens, dozens of rejections. Can you imagine being apartment hunting and being refused, you know, 30 times in one month? And this all when your kids are like at the brink. So it just, <clears throat> it is one of the, the, one of the things that then contributes to the ongoing instability because there were two guys that worked for me, um, both of which had a similar situation. They had married a woman who already had two children. They then had two children. When they reached the four children mark, their landlord came and told them that they, couldn't, they could no longer live in their two-bedroom apartment. So not, not only the stress of a new baby, but now you have to relocate. And they uh, couldn't find a, fa a place fast enough. And they had already been reported by the landlord to CPS, Child Protective Services. And before you know it, um, you know, mom is trying to take two of the kids to live with her mom, and dad's taking two of the kids to live with his mom. They're separated. CPS is already after them. Kids end up in custody. Um, now, in order to get the kids out of custody, they have to do a lot of things, right? You have to show up. You have to prove your employment. You have to take drug tests. You have to find new housing. You have to have that housing inspected. It's a whole thing. I, I've never dealt with this, right? So this is something I think that is very specific to those that are made poor, this particular hassle, right? And there's other elements to it, right? There's a big hassle with probation officers, parole officers, drug testing, check-ins. My employees miss a lot of work. I have no idea how they would hold down a job anywhere else, right? If they worked at any regular grocery store, if they had, you know, one of the guys actually, you know, got a call back from the post office, which for him was like the break of his life. He's like, I'm going to be a federal employee. I'm going to have a pension. He couldn't even make it through the 90 days probation because of one of these various appointments that was going to always conflict with his work schedule. So the system does not make it easy. <laughs> Anyhow. In order to secure housing, what you then have is a lot of people accepting sort of, um, well, terrible housing. <laughs> uh, very often, you can only get accepted or rent a place through a friend or a family reference. Somebody knows somebody that knows somebody that has an apartment, or you're dealing with like a particularly lenient landlord. So then when you finally get your family moved into this new apartment and you find mold in your bathroom, how likely are you to report it? I then had <clears throat> two or three employees who were living in places, one of which the bathroom ceiling fell into his bathtub three times, and there was mold all over the apartment. Now, both of his young children ended up with asthma, one of which ended up in the hospital with pneumonia. I, I'm not a physician. I'm not going to stand here to try to make correlations between mold and asthma, though it is something that has been documented in the past. Another one of them, uh, both of his children, he had two very healthy children born before, and then the two children where his wife was living in this apartment when they were born um, were both born with the same condition. It's called gastric... I don't even know how to say this word. 
So I asked him what it was when he had to miss work uh, two or three times for surgeries, for his small infants to have surgeries. It's when you're born with your intestines on the outside. Um, again, it is, a, uh, <clears throat> it is a condition for which they are not sure of the cause. I'm not a medical professional, and I'm not going to stand here and try to make those correlations. I'm simply describing to you what I've seen. Now, I went and told both of them, I said, you have to report this housing. You can't continue to live here. And both of them told me the same thing, right? One, they're both 35-year-old black men with criminal records. The likelihood that any landlord would ever entertain them was pretty slim, not to mention they didn't think they would ever pass the background check or the credit check or be able to come up with a deposit to move, especially because one of the favorite things for LA landlords to do is to keep your security deposit. So we've talked a little bit about how that can then obviously impact your ability to keep a job. But I'll go on a little bit to transportation. So when you uh, don't have a lot of money, it's really hard to maintain a car, right? There's the cost of registration and tickets and all, you know, insurance, the accoutrement. It's interesting because that wouldn't be such a big deal if you were white. My mother, who happens to be here, I'm going to call her out. She's been driving around with expired tags for months. <laughs> And she has never been stopped, never. Uh, whereas, you know, my employees coming to and from work are stopped on an almost daily basis, almost daily. One time I was standing, I happened to be sitting in front of my warehouse enjoying my lunch in the sun under a tree when I saw them driving back and then I saw the police officers coming right behind them and they stopped them in front of the warehouse. Where are you going? What are you doing? And I'm like, well, they're coming here. I'm their boss. This is where they work. First of all, the officer was like, there's no way that you're their boss, so just shut up. But um, that it just goes on and on. And so it's really hard to keep up with all the bills that are required around having a car. But if you should get behind, Rest assured, you'll get caught. So I've had lots of guys who are on their way to work and had their cars impounded for expired tags. Then they end up on public transportation. Public transportation in LA is a whole other thing, right? It's terrible. And recently, in the last couple of years, there's been um, a lot of checkpoints. And I know the media keeps saying that these things don't exist, but they definitely do, since I've seen five of them myself with my own eyes. Uh, they don't call them Homeland Security or ICE checkpoints. Typically, there'll be things like a DUI checkpoint at a 2 p.m. on a Thursday on not a holiday weekend. Or it will be um, a bunch of officers along with paddy wagons at a train station checking for fare evaders. Um, but the intention is obvious. It is just a huge dragnet of terror. Uh, that works very well to catch folks who are traveling without identification or maybe have you know, some outstanding warrant, even something as small as a traffic ticket, um, and finding people that don't have perfect immigration paperwork, expired or transitional. So that makes it very difficult to take public transportation to and from work. Now, you go through a series of stories. I'll try to pick like maybe one or two good ones, but uh, Cornelius. Cornelius McZeal, African-American, he is a citizen, but he was walking home and the officer stopped him just to ask what, um, you know, where was he going, what was he doing? They asked for his identification, he said he didn't have it, and also, he's a pretty smart guy, so he said, unless you're looking for a suspect that meets my description, you know, I really don't even have to provide you with an ID. 
The response to that was, your mouth is going to determine how this night goes for you. He was taken into custody. The following morning, when he didn't show up to work, I went online, and I typically do this. I check the, the sheriff's inmate booking system. This is how often it happens. That after my 7 a.m. staff meeting, when I notice that there's a staff person missing, the first thing I do is check the sheriff's website. So I checked the sheriff's website. Interestingly, he was not listed. And so I ended up calling around to the, the stations that I know are near his, his home. And I finally did talk to somebody who said, oh, yes, he's here. We haven't decided to charge him yet. And they actually held him for like another 24 hours. So he missed two full days of work. Is there any other job where you can be a no call, no show, with zero explanation, and not even a booking because you never get booked, so you couldn't even bring the proof that you were in jail, and get to keep your job? Like nowhere, right? Except that this is RCO, and this is what RCO apparently specializes in. <laughs> uh, what was another one? Oh, three of the guys got into a car to go to Jack in the Box at lunchtime. Four of the guys, sorry. Four guys got in a car. They went to Jack in the Box. Of course, they were stopped on the way for no reason, just suspicious. Four people of color in a car going to Jack in the Box. Um, when they were pulled over, all of them had their names run, their IDs run, and one of them had an outstanding traffic violation that he was supposed to have gone to court for the week before, but he'd forgotten. Right. So it's not even like it's been outstanding for a very long time. They took him into custody. So then when they came back from lunch, I, there were three guys. And I'm like, hey, guys, where's the fourth musketeer? Like, where's the fourth guy? They're, oh, the cops. Like, how does a business like RCO function when the state continues to kidnap my employees? I started with four people on the workforce in the morning and only had three by the middle of the afternoon. Oh, it goes on and on. So... <clears throat> I think you can begin to sort of see how unstable housing, unstable transportation, when then combined with this sort of constant hypercriminalization and harassment, can make it almost impossible for someone to keep a job. Right? And this stretches well beyond that sort of initial response of, oh, they're formerly incarcerated people, therefore they're background checks are what is keeping them from being employed, right? It's not just about a background check. It's about the fact that they live in an American apartheid system. And somehow just me offering them a job, be, regardless of their background check, is not gonna solve the problem. So <clears throat> there's a couple other elements to this that I'd like to add. One has to do with resources within our social networks. So me personally, if I, had not paid my car registration because I was short on cash that month, and then I got my car impounded, like that would be a really sort of ditzy thing for me to do, and I'd be disappointed in myself for having done it, right? Now, if that then caused me to lose my job because I missed work a couple days, I would be really feeling down on myself. Now, if I couldn't find another job and I couldn't make my rent, oh boy, I'd be in a whole nother like pot of hot water. Well, you know what I'd do? Call my mom. I would go home and live with my mama. And that's because she has stable housing, because she has a salaried union job, and also because you know, she inherited a house from my grandmama. So what does anybody else do when they don't have friends and family that can provide that for them, right? If we're all stretched like this extremely thin all the time, like who do you fall back on? Who do you rely on? Who in your social networks can help you in these times of need? So that's another big problem. 
but um, there's a sort of second element to that that has to do with social networks, which is that it's also difficult to access the people that can get you ahead in life too, right? If, you're, if your social networks tend to be full of folks that are just like you, that are living on the razor's edge, it, you're not always going to get the wonderful opportunity to meet somebody who might be able to refer you to a great job or give you a great reference or inform you on new opportunities. Um, I think that that became really apparent with me <laughs> because I went to this amazing Ivy League university. And while I came from, <clears throat> while I came from a fairly well-educated, my mother was the first person in our family to go to college. Um, but still, you know, she was an auto mechanic for years. My grandmother was a hairdresser. We're not, uh, we don't have generations of sort of well-connected networks. Columbia University probably should have been the place that I went to get those, right? That would have been my opportunity to begin to make friends and colleagues and lifelong relationships with people who have access to types of wealth that I'm not familiar with. However, I didn't do that. Instead, I spent most of my college hanging out with another young black girl from Oakland. We uh, commiserated on how shocking it was to see extremely wealthy people up close. Uh, and we spent a lot of time going to like Harlem reggae clubs on the weekend. But that's because I was looking for something that was familiar. It was hard for me to think about socializing with people that holidayed in the Hamptons, right? It just didn't <laughs> register with me. And, and that becomes part of our sort of cycle is that, you know, it's hard for us to break through and to find, find the networks that are going to lead us to new possibilities. Also, the other thing that we incredibly burden ourselves to do is that for some reason, those of us, uh, with the very least, have an inherent desire to give back in ways that I can't even describe. I started teaching um, entrepreneurship classes to the formerly incarcerated, and I have to say, like, I made the assumption, I think anybody else would make this assumption too, but I made the assumption that most people would want to figure out a way to make as much money as possible because they had to make up for lost time from all the years that they spent out of the workforce, right? So a couple of the business models I looked at was you know, a woman who was going to start a corner store, a bodega, and then a guy who was going to start a trucking school, and um, somebody else who was going to start a worm farm for bait. It's a thing. So, <laughs> but what's interesting is that every single one of those business models has some social aspect to it, right? The woman that wanted to start this bodega, she wanted it to have a safe space for teenagers. She's like, I just want to put a couple arcade games over there so that kids can feel safe coming in here to hang out after school. The guy with the trucking company, he wanted to definitely educate other formerly incarcerated people about how they could get into the trucking business. The worm farm, same thing. He had a, you know, he wanted to educate uh, young people in the schools about farming and soil remediation and growing your own food. And I was so impressed. I was like, wow, you guys. <laughs> It reminds me all the time, because even me, right, here I am with this tire recycling business, you know, and there's a lot of other startups out there, right? It could have been a tech startup. It could have been any kind of startup. But we have this desire. We want to make our communities better, and it's, um, it inspires me, and it reminds me all the time that a poverty of means is not a poverty of spirit. But uh, I think that it does tax us, like, to the absolute maximum, right, that people with so few resources who are then trying to rely on each other who also have so few resources and then want to also give to each other who have so few resources. 
So that becomes one of the elements in this sort of feedback loop. Now, when I was at MIT and we were studying climate change, um, they used the analogy, they used feedback loops quite a bit. So I was thinking about making slides, but the actual slide, the diagrams, feedback loops is so dull to look at. So I'll just ask you to imagine it in your mind. But feedback loops are things like, as the climate temperature increases, the permafrost begins to melt, and then you know, off gases, methane gases, which then increase the clip at which climate change is moving. So there are these feedback loops throughout the cycle where one cause then enhances the overall cycle. Same thing like uh, air conditioning, right? As the temperature increases, humans are going to need air conditioning in order to survive. Air conditioning requires chemicals that then destroy our ozone and requires energy that also creates more greenhouse gases, creating a feedback loop, which then contributes to the overall climate change cycle. So poverty has its own feedback loops, right? We've talked about a few of them. The transportation, the housing, the shortage of resources within our communities, the inability to access upwardly mobile social networks and then the constant hypercriminalization of the media and sort of society's enforcers, which continue to blame us for being impoverished people and then jail us for doing it. Um, I didn't go through all the pages I meant to go through. <laughs> now, I, at this point, which I think I've gone through quite a bit of my time, I will finally arrive at the health impacts. So the primary health impact that I want to talk about is stress. Like now that I've talked about this with you for about 40 minutes, are you guys stressed out? Like, <laughs> I'm a little stressed out. Writing it made me stressed out, it was sort of traumatic. <laughs> um, but it's, it's actually just that. And so I'm gonna quote uh, some medical things that I don't have that much experience in, but I think that they're really important. There's quite a bit of research that links heart disease to stress. They're not actually sure why. It has something to do with the increase of heart rate and blood flow, which releases cholesterol and triglycerides. Asthma is linked to stress. Obesity, obviously, and there's so many connections. Everybody's always made the connection between obesity and low income, right, and the health impacts that those can have. Diabetes, depression, anxiety, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and then one that I thought was particularly interesting, it had to do with premature death. So they did a study in which they uh, measured at which age uh, folks died who were taking care of their their partners, right? So caretaking is an incredibly stressful position to be in. I took care of my grandmother until she died. Uh, and they actually found out that caregivers had a 63% higher death rate than other people of their age who were not caregivers. Now, not to speak to caregiving, just to talk about the stress, the constant calculus of navigating this sort of matrix in which at any moment, just when you think that you've got everything right, just when you think you've got a job, just when you think you've got a car, just when you think you've got some housing and everything's on track, anything can happen to you to throw that completely off. One of the stories I didn't include, it's a little bit close to home, um, my, my, my partner, my husband, was um, standing in front of our house. He... Uh, 
remarkably, he managed to buy this house on like a warehouse worker's income. It was like some miracle. But he was getting the kids and uh, the dog out of the car. The police pulled up next to him and said, you know, what are you doing? He sort of said, well, I'm getting the kids and the dog out of the car. Is this your house? Yes, it is my house. Is this your car? Yes, it is my car. Do you have any drugs or weapons? Just so silly, if any of you guys ever meet Brian, he's like a vegan Buddhist pacifist. He's so funny. <laughs> but they're, <laughs> they're like, do you have any guns or weapons? And I think that he did sort of chuckle. I, I mean, he probably did. He was like, what a funny question to ask me while I'm in my driveway with my children. At which point the officers then opened our gate, entered our driveway, tackled him, and uh, told him that he was going to be arrested for resisting arrest, which is some police logic that I don't fully understand. Uh, they also told him that the kids were going to be taken by CPS unless somebody was going to show up and take care of them. So he like yelled to my neighbor, lovers to death. She happened to just like come out of the gate and grab the kids uh, to take the kids. He was taken. I, I pulled up about this time with my one week old baby, and they dragged him away. They also then proceeded to raid our house and like kicked out. We were in our spare room to a yoga teacher. They kicked down our door. And then they ripped open his meditation pillow, which I thought was just like a really vicious, <laughs> unnecessary act. <laughs> they searched his car. Uh, my mother and I and baby spent all night at the station trying to get him out. But like, here's a guy who's done everything right, right? Like he, he was convicted originally of graffiti. He was a graffiti artist and um, went to prison for felony vandalism. But you know, after he got out, he's always held a job. He <clears throat> has been raising his children. He has, you know, bought himself a house. Like, everything right. Now, if he had worked any other job but RCO and missed work the next day with this kind of, like, cockeyed story, do you think, I don't even know if another employer would believe him, <laughs> like, that this had happened to him. Uh, but I was there. And, uh, and he's the foreman. You know, he runs a fairly large organization. Right? We, do, we do about a million plus a year in revenue. $100,000 a month, you know, dozens of employees, lots of moving parts. We've got a fleet of trucks. Missing our foreman is a big deal. Um, so it becomes incredibly hard for businesses also to sustain themselves in this climate. Um, but that said, <laughs> I thought that um, another interesting thing that I read, and this is also to be debated, so definitely don't quote me on this, but there's been a few genetic studies recently that also show there was one study done of Holocaust survivors, uh, which is a very small uh, study. So I don't know if it's statistically significant. And there was another one done with lab rats. But both of them were to test the theory that possibly trauma could be inherited, that there could be changes to your DNA, to your genetics from trauma, generational trauma. And what they found were that, in fact, there is a genetic marker for stress and how one copes with stress and the receptor was, was altered in the next generation after those who had been traumatized. There was a positive outcome, too, on that study, which is that uh, after one generation of living without trauma, that that particular change in one's DNA ended up being reversed. So I think that that is a hopeful thought if everything else that I'm saying is just too depressing. So you combine the incredibly high stress and the fact that high stress can also then impact our children. You combine that along with um, the last speaker who was here, I think she so perfectly described it when she said that we live in a toxic witch's brew 
um, which is true. A lot of low-income communities and communities of color live in a place where there's air, soil, water, contamination, places like Flint, but you know, also just all over the country. In Long Beach, we have some of the worst air quality in the country because we are right there at the hub of the country's largest port, so idling trucks 24 hours a day. Um, even my house, my lovely house, which I love, where I grow kale in the front yard. My house is also three blocks from LA's busiest freeway. It is directly underneath the Los Angeles' main power line corridor. Um, I am also right under the flight path for the world's busiest airport, LAX. Uh, so all night, right, hearing the planes. I don't even notice it anymore, though. And, um, but the, what that also means is that the exhaust, the heavy metals from jet fuel exhaust, are raining down on my children every day. So I don't have the statistics about health. I think that we looked at a few that are important, but they're all readily available if you want to look at them. But I would like to say that I know there's a health crisis. And here's how I know. My lovely neighbor, who I mentioned, who also helps me look after my baby, is incapable of working because three days out of the month, at least, she suffers from full body pain caused by fibromyalgia. Again, something that no one is clear what the causes are, but stress being a key component, right? Um, I was sitting with another neighbor of mine, a woman about my age, uh, beautiful, with three children, very vibrant, and uh, she was telling me that her kids had gone to live with her grandmother because her car broke down and she wasn't able to get them to school on the bus and also get herself to her weekly chemo treatments and her weekly dialysis treatments. Um, my best friend's mother was in a coma last year. She suffers from a combination of high blood pressure. She now has a pacemaker. She also has diabetes and she is a survivor of cervical cancer. So these are just a few, these are three women in my community. Uh, the list goes on and on. And it makes me scared. It makes me scared because I live there with my children. Now, despite, <laughs> despite all of that, I would like to conclude with some hopeful thoughts. My mother calls it a pathological optimism. So here's a few ideas on how we can sort of begin to reverse these trends and how these gears sort of function together to grind us up and spit us out. Uh, there are a lot of programs dedicated to working with folks who are having challenges with housing and incarceration and employment. Uh, an inevitable sort of alphabet soup, many of which I've dealt with as an entrepreneur. But there is also a great deal of research and empirical evidence that shows that the best way to help people without money is to give them money. So I think that our communities are just going to need some serious capital injections. Like, we need to be repaired, which means that we need reparations. And it's not a particularly popular word. And I'm not going to spend too much time making the case for it. There's some incredible scholarly work done around it, but it needs to happen. 
But not only reparations and not only increased capital in our communities, we have to figure out the mechanisms that are going to keep that capital in our communities, right? Because most consumption tends to be extractive. We go, we buy our home goods, right? Our sheets and our vases and our detergent from Target. Or you know, even if we're buying a used car, we're financing it at our local car lot, but they're using you know, Wells Fargo used vehicle financing which means that all the profits from those transactions, that purchase that you made or the car that you financed, all of the profits from those transactions are leaving the community, right? They're going to the shareholders of Target and the shareholders of Wells Fargo. If anybody works for Wells Fargo, I'm not trying to pick on them. They just came up again and again in this paper, but it's all the banks. The, there's a few ways that people have thought about doing this. One of the most fundamental one, though, is building locally owned business, right? Companies like mine. Um, and in order to do that, we need more access to capital and not just debt financing. Like we, I have loans. I appreciate loans. We need loans. We also need investors. We need equity. We need dollars on the table. We need capital that's willing to take risk. And <clears throat> I'm particularly interested in one other model of business ownership. Uh, I'm happy with all forms of local business ownership, really, you know, family-owned, community-owned. For building larger types of businesses, one particularly excellent tool is cooperative ownership. And so worker-owned businesses are a way for us to build the larger institutions, the larger anchor institutions that we need in our, in, in our communities without outside investors, without uh, large capital injections that are going to then be extractive. There's some excellent models for this, Mondragon being one of them. I recommend everybody look it up. Mondragon is in Spain. They've got you know, 200 plus companies. They employ 80,000 people. They do 23 billion euro a year or something in revenue. And they're all owned and operated by the people that work in their companies. So that is the dream. And Mondragon is here trying to incubate sort of uh, businesses like this. Some, there's some great examples at Evergreen, which is in Cleveland. There's some models coming out of Cincinnati. There's us doing our little bit down in Compton. We're trying to become a worker-owned business, though not yet. And uh, a few examples out in Berkeley. And I'm sure that there's cooperatives here in Colorado and that we can grow that movement towards sort of a more dignified, a more decent, a more just economy that works for all of us. Thank you so much for your time. If I have made any impact, the credit is entirely due to the incredible people whose stories I told. And if I made any mistakes, they're all my own. <laughs> Thank you.